0: Good morning Taylor's family. It is so good uh, to see you. It's such an honor uh, to be able to worship with you today. So much appreciate uh, your hospitality that you have shown uh, to me and to my family already this morning on what is uh, truly a special day and has already been a, uh, a powerful day of worship. And uh, so glad to be able to share this time together. I want to say to you, uh, first and foremost, how grateful uh, I am. And on behalf of our executive director, Dr. Gary Hollingsworth and our team in Columbia, and really on behalf of all 2,100 of our churches, I want you to know how grateful I am, how grateful we are for you and for your continued leadership and what it looks like to be a church that has a heart for the mission of God in its own community that extends to the ends of the earth. For uh, years, for decades, Taylor's First Baptist Church has been a leader, not just in our state, But in the Southern Baptist Convention, when it comes to generosity, particularly for the sake of mission, whether that's giving through the cooperative program or giving through Annie Armstrong or Lottie Moon or Janie Chapman, you have set the gold standard of what it looks like to be a church that has a heart for the mission of God and is willing to give and to invest in the mission of God in a radically sacrificial and generous way. And you continue to do that. But not only are you giving, you also set the pace for what it looks like to be a church that goes, a church that goes locally and a church that goes to the nations. And so I just want to say to you, thank you. Thank you for continuing to show the way and especially thank you for the way that you have done that so faithfully and so generously and so sacrificially even in the midst of transition. It would be very, very easy for you to just take the foot off the gas pedal and say, you know, we need to deal with some things in-house and we're gonna kind of turn our focus inside and we're gonna take care of those matters and then once we get everything taken care of and we have a pastor and all that, then we're gonna get back uh, forward and get back giving and get back going but that's not what you've done. That's not what you've done. In fact, I can't tell you how encouraging and how excited I was to see how you had not only maintained your commitment to the to the nations and maintained your commitment to the mission of God, but how even over the last year, you increased that commitment demonstrated in your giving. When we were looking at some year-end numbers for 2019 for our churches and our state as a whole, I just was blown away and so encouraged. I texted the staff and shared with them how excited we were uh, to see that and how thankful we are for you, how impressed by you uh, we are. And uh, we prayed for you and we thank God for you. And especially for me personally, Um, This faith family has a near and dear place in my heart because of how God used you to shape my life. As a college senior at North Greenville, God opened an opportunity for me to have my first church staff experience, and it happened here at Taylor's First Baptist, beginning as a student ministry intern, leading into being the interim uh, pastor for student ministry uh, with Dr. Carswell and Phil Hargrove and Lindsay O'Rear and so many of you and so many others that were on staff at that time, Daryl Hopkins, God has used to profoundly influence and shape my life and ministry and calling, and it's what you've done, not just for me, but for countless others around the world as you give and as you go. So thank you, Taylors, for your heart, for the mission of God. And let me tell you why it is so very important that we understand the critical need and the critical opportunity that we have as the people of God and as the church of God to join in with his mission in our giving and then are going, um, I have the privilege of being able to, to serve not only oddly enough as a doctoral student at Southeastern, but also as a member of the board of trustees and how all that works. I'm not real sure. Uh, but I did call up my doctoral advisor once I was ele- elected to the board of trustees. And I said, you know, that now, since I'm your boss, if you don't pass me, I'm going to have you fired. Okay. <clears throat> And he did the exact same thing to me that you just did. He just laughed and said, okay, now get me the paper. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's on the way, right? It's on the way. But uh, at our fall meeting uh, this past fall, we were touring some facilities on the campus and going in to see some, uh, specifically some new work that had been done on campus. And one of the places we we went in was the Center for Great Commission Studies there at Southeastern. As we walked into the beautiful lobby area, uh, they had a large flat screen TV positioned on the wall that wasn't rolling through the latest news ticker or you know ESPN Sports Center or anything like that. But what it had was a, was a connection uh, to, a, to a service that was providing an up-to-the-minute update of global population increase. And then statistically speaking, how much of that global percentage I- increase at that time would have the opportunity to hear And respond to the gospel. And it grabbed my heart because at that moment, it was about 11 a.m. that morning, at that moment, uh, the world's population had grown statistically by about 128,000 people. And as we stood there, I mean, you're just watching the number. It's it's changing constantly. It's it's updated to the minute to the second. Now, statistically speaking, out of those 128,000 that had been born into the world that the world's population had increased by, approximately 12,000 would have the opportunity to hear the gospel and would respond favorably by placing their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. We praise God for even one sinner who repents and turns to, to Christ, right? So it says 12,000 out of 128,000. So praise God for every one of them. But boy, you, you already hear the gap there, right? Beyond that 12,000, there were about 30,000 that would have had the opportunity to hear, but for whatever reason would have chosen to reject the gospel, to not place their faith in Jesus, a savior. And Lord, maybe it would be the influence of another religion. Maybe it would be fear of what may happen in their, in their country, uh, whatever it might be. Maybe more questions that they wanted to have answered, whatever the reason would be. 30,000 would hear the gospel, but would choose not to respond. But it was the bottom number. It was the bottom number that grabbed my heart. All of that means a lot, but the bottom number was the one that grabbed my heart because this number was going up almost as quickly as that total global population increase number uh, was, was increasing. And that number was 86,000. And that number represented the people out of that 128,000 that the world's population had increased on that particular day that were born into an area where the likelihood would be very high that they would live all of their days and pass away never having heard the name of Jesus. 86,000 out of 128,000 people would live all of their days and pass away never having heard the life of giving message of the gospel. In our state right now, as best as we can tell, and you know that 80% of stats are made up on the spot, like the one I just made up, right? So as best as we can tell, all right, as best as we can tell, About three out of four people that you and I lock eyes with and rub shoulders with on a day-to-day basis in the state of South Carolina right now have no connection at all to any gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church. Not just a South Carolina Baptist church that's even extending the tent beyond our tribe, beyond our family. This is any church, any denomination that will believe the gospel and would preach the gospel. The best that we can tell, about three out of four people in our state have no connection to any evangelical gospel preaching, gospel believing church whatsoever. Which means the likelihood is very high that most of those folks do not have a relationship with Jesus as well. Numerically speaking, that translates to about 3.6 million people out of the just under 5 million people that call South Carolina home. And that's where we have churches all over the place, right? Protract that over the world. 2 billion people still today have never heard the name of Jesus. 5 billion all total unreached by the gospel and live in a place that is underserved and underreached and has little to no gospel influence. The, the need and the opportunity that is in front of us is significant. It is huge. So huge that I believe sometimes we grow numb to it all because it is numbers. It's statistics. It feels like it's out there somewhere. And because most of us have never seen 3.6 million people gathered into one place, many of us have never even seen 128,000 people gathered into one place at one time. We, we don't we don't quite have a, a, a category for what that even looks like and how to really feel the weight of those numbers and the, and the weight of that need and the weight of that opportunity. And that's why I love, that's why I love this Who's Your One emphasis that has captured so many of our churches, that has captured our national denomination, that has captured our state, that, that we're focusing on today, that you have been praying over these last couple of weeks, answering that question, who is it that's close to you but far from God? Who is that one person, that family member, that coworker, the classmate, the teammate, the next door neighbor, the longtime best friend? Who is that one person that's close to you but far from God? And here's why I believe this is so powerful and this is such an opportunity for all of us, for all of us, because I believe that we will not take the Great Commission seriously. Jesus' command to go into all nations and to make disciples and to baptize those new believers And then to teach them to join in the mission of God and to live their lives on mission along with us and to do that uh, all the days of our lives knowing that He's going to be with us. We won't take that great commission seriously until we take it personally. We won't take the great commission seriously until we take it personally. And we begin to take it personally when we recognize those that are close to us, but far from God. When we recognize we don't have to get on a bus and we don't have to get on an airplane to find great spiritual need. Often we just have to walk across our driveway. Often we just have to walk down the hall. Often we just have to lean over to the person sitting next to us. Often. We just have to bring up the conversation at our dinner tables. We will not take the Great Commission seriously until we take the Great Commission personally. And I believe this emphasis on who's your one, and I pray, Lord willing, this passage we're going to look at this morning is going to help us move to take the Great Commission personally. If you've got a copy of God's Word with you, I hope you do. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. It's the first uh, book of the New Testament. If you're not uh, familiar with the Bible, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 35. We're actually going to read down uh study through chapter 10 and verse 5. And In this, we get a few pictures that I believe help us Take the Great Commission personally so that we will take it seriously and we'll find our part to play in the mission of God, specifically focusing our hearts and our lives on that one that's close to us but far from God. I want you to follow along your copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, and we'll read down through chapter 10 and verse 5. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. A few pictures in this text that I believe help us take the Great Commission personally. The first thing I want you to see in this text is I want you to see God's heart. I want you to see God's heart. Now in verse 35 and 36, uh, we, we see this about Jesus that he is doing what he so often did, what he spent so much of his earthly life doing. And that is he was traveling from town to town and village to village and he was doing two things. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God that was, that was not yet to come, but that has now come because he has come and he is the perfect and only fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah that God had promised that would come and usher in his kingdom. Jesus is saying, the kingdom is here. I am here. I am the Messiah. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the, I am the life. And he was teaching that in his proclamation. But he wasn't just teaching it. He was also demonstrating it in the healing of every disease and every affliction that was brought before him. And so these massive crowds of people would gather around and Jesus would teach about the kingdom and then he would demonstrate the kingdom. He would show that God's kingdom in God's kingdom, there is no disease that cannot be healed and will not be healed. There is no brokenness that cannot and will not be mended. There is no lostness. There is no depravity, there is no need, it all will be met and it will be met in our Father who loves us and who has made a way for us to know him. And Jesus would later say, I am that way. So Jesus is coming and he is teaching the kingdom, he is demonstrating the kingdom and at the center of his teaching and at the center of his demonstration is this profound truth that he came back to over and over again. It's ultimately what got him killed, and that is Jesus repeatedly saying and repeatedly demonstrating that he is God and there is none other. And so in every message, in every healing, in every miracle, Jesus' statement, the emphatic statement of every one of them, was Jesus' declaration that he is God and there is none other but him. So, understanding that Jesus is God and all the teaching and all of the miracles are all pointed to that helps us then understand even more the power of what we learn about Jesus in verse 36. Because Matthew tells us that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. Anywhere Jesus showed up to teach, anywhere Jesus showed up to do anything, there was always a crowd. Crowd of people that hated him and wanted him dead crowd of people that loved him and hung on every word and hung on every miracle because he had impacted their lives. He had given them life. He had restored them. He had renewed them. He had given them hope. And so they followed after him. So anywhere Jesus went, there was always a huge crowd. And Matthew records for us that when Jesus looked and he saw all of these crowds that were gathering to hear him teach and they were gathering to see and experience the miracles, that Jesus looked at those crowds and he had what compassion on them because he saw them as sheep Without a shepherd. And that word compassion, sometimes in our English language, in our English understanding, our modern understanding of the word compassion, it feels a little bit more like a Hallmark card, right? Like we we think about compassion and we think something like this. Oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry that's happened. I'm going to write you a card. Put it in the mail. Oh, compassion, right? And that's true to a point. But the word that Matthew has chosen here in the original language to communicate Jesus's emotional response to these massive crowds of people that gathered around him was not one that was a gentle compassion. This was not one that just simply said, oh, these poor people, I hope things turn around for all of them. That's not Jesus's response. Now, the word that Matthew has chosen to describe Jesus' emotional response is one that speaks to a gut-wrenching, stomach-turning emotion. One where you almost feel you're so heart-sick that you almost feel physically sick. Have you ever experienced that? I bet you have. I, I bet you've, you've heard something on the news or you've read something in the newspaper or you've seen something on social media or you've heard of something or seen something that's taken place in your life or a close friend's life or a family member's life or something that's happened in the community. Some tragedy has taken place. Some atrocity has taken place somewhere in the world. Some measure of injustice has taken place in somebody's lives. And you just feel, you just feel your stomach turn. You feel your stomach burn. Your heart hurts so much. Your heart is so weighed down by the emotion that you feel that you just, you just feel like you want to be sick or you feel like you got to get up and go do something about it, right? Have you ever felt that? I'm sure you have. You want to know what causes that kind of emotional response in the heart of our God? People who have great spiritual need and are lost and separated from Him. God is not shaking His fist and breathing out threats at people that don't know Him, daring them to live another second, rejecting Him. That's not the heart of our God. The heart of our God towards lostness is a gut-wrenching, stomach-turning, emotional response longing for these crowds to know him and the life that he came to give them, to know him and the victory that's theirs in Christ, to know him and the hope that's available to them in Jesus. This is why the Old Testament and Exodus numbers and numerous other places, God says that he is slow to anger and abounding in love acting with grace towards his people, even in response to their outright rebellion and idolatry. It's why Paul said in that great text in Ephesians 2, in the shadow of our spiritual death, God's response is because of his mercy, out of his great love, he has demonstrated for us in Christ the immeasurable riches of his kindness and his grace. It is why Peter says that God is not slow in keeping his promise to send his son to return to make all things new. He's not slow as we understand slow, but he is patient. Why? Because he longs for every man, woman, and child to have the opportunity to repent and find life in Christ. This is the heart of our God. Oh God, would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? lostness, spiritual need. Now, to understand this emotional response that Jesus had to these crowds is where we have to see our second picture, and that is the true condition of lostness. What does it really mean to be lost, separated from Christ, apart from him? We get a picture of it there. When it says that Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now I'm guessing there are not very many uh, shepherds in the room that have a field full of sheep waiting on them at home right now, right? Where you had to find somebody to tend to the sheep while you came to church and then you're gonna go grab a bite, uh, probably shepherd's pie, ha and you're gonna go home and you're gonna take back over your shift watching over the sheep, right? I'm guessing that wasn't the case for many of us um, today. So so we need to understand a few things about what Jesus meant by seeing these folks as sheep without a shepherd and why Matthew would choose that. Why, why, why was this the imagery that was used? Sheep who don't have a shepherd do one thing. They wander. They wander, often aimlessly. Sheep are not the brightest animals that God ever made. Why, I don't know, but in this way right here this image is actually helpful for us to understand lostness sheep without a shepherd to guide them and to protect them and to feed them and and to 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 grab them with a staff and bring them back in when they wander sheep will just wander off all on their own and as they wander they fall into ditches they get tangled up in thorns as they're trying to eat a berry or something Sometimes they walk right off of the edge of a mountain, right off of a cliff, all on their own. But also because they wander off by themselves, they become very vulnerable and they become easy prey for those that would want to attack them and kill them. And in case you don't know, sheep don't have a very vicious defense mechanism. Ma not turning anything away, right? Ain't nobody scared of that. So this imagery that Jesus has chosen to use, sheep without a shepherd, he saw these crowds as people who were wandering from place to place, from relationship to relationship, from job to job, From substance to substance, right? It connects modern day pretty quickly, doesn't it? Because apart from Christ, what do we do? We wander. We wander. We look for life in any number of pursuits. We'll look for life in a relationship. We'll look for life in a new relationship, and we'll end the other one. We'll look for life in a job. We'll look for life in a bank account. We'll look for life in a substance. We'll look for life in a thousand places and only wind up feeling something more like death, which is what the phrase harassed means. The imagery is graphic and it is vivid that Matthew's chosen because that word harassed speaks to literally a dead carcass or one that has been, that has been wounded severely, that is, is laying, so to speak, on the side of the road or, or in a field by itself. It has been attacked by an animal that wanted to kill it. In a sheep's uh, case, that would be a wolf or a coyote has taken it down and, and the whole pack has come and they are now just ripping apart that sheep bit by bit, bit by bit. Which means those of us that don't know Christ, we're wandering, we feel that. Looking for life, only winding up feeling something more like death being ripped apart. our sin, the consequences of our sin, being ripped apart by guilt, being ripped apart by brokenness, being ripped apart by a deep sinking feeling of hopelessness, which is why that helpless word is so important, because just like that dead or severely injured animal that's being ripped apart by a pack of wolves, can't do anything to get himself up and out of that situation. So we, on our own, in our own strength, can do nothing about our spiritual death before a holy God. Powerless. So what is the true condition of lostness? Wandering. Wounded. Wounded. Bleeding, dead, being ripped apart by our sin, our brokenness, hopelessness, and powerless, unable to do anything about it. That picture should break our hearts. Because, yes, that's the picture of those that are close to us but far from God, that one that you've been praying over these last couple of weeks, that is the picture of their spiritual condition. And you've already seen it and know it. You already know for sure about the wandering. You may not know about the harassed part because a lot of that happens deep inside our soul, deep inside our hearts, right? But maybe they've expressed some of that to you. Or maybe that's you. You're the one wandering. You're the one feeling harassed. And help us, right? This ought to break our hearts. This ought to weigh so heavy on our hearts, but not just because that's the condition of, of others that we may know because that's us apart from Christ. That's who you and I were apart from Christ. And but by his grace, that's who we would still be. Wandering, harassed, helpless. That's the picture Of lostness, the true condition of lostness. So we see God's heart, a gut-wrenching, stomach-turning, emotional response to these crowds that gathered sheep without a shepherd, true condition of lostness, wandering, being ripped apart by sin and brokenness and hopelessness and guilt and shame, powerless and unable on their own to do anything about it. And if that problem is not great enough, see the problem here, that Jesus identifies in verse 37. He says to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Spiritual need is everywhere and it is great, it is significant, Jesus says. All of these crowds, the need is huge. It's massive numerically, it's massive in its depth. We are surrounded by sheep without a shepherd, wandering, being ripped apart. Powerless and unable to do anything about it. And Jesus says this harvest is plentiful. We know it's plentiful here. We just talked about it. It's plentiful in Greenville County. It's plentiful in South Carolina. It's plentiful across North America. And it is plentiful all over the world. The harvest is plentiful. But those that are broken and moved by it enough to jump into the middle of it, to try to somehow, some way, by God's grace and his power, do something about it. That number is few, Jesus said. The harvest is plentiful, but those that are willing to put aside comfort and preference to engage in that harvest, those, that number of workers, that number's few. The harvest is plentiful, but those that are taking the great commission personally, that number is few. The harvest is plentiful, but those that believe that there's not a single man, woman, or child that's outside of the saving grace of our God, so faithful and bold in that belief are they? They're willing to engage with people that are close to them but far from God. That number is few. I've heard it said, I don't know who said it first, but I've heard it several times over the last few years especially, that the only thing worse than being lost is being lost and knowing that no one is looking for you. The only thing worse than being lost is being lost and knowing that no one is looking for you. Just a few years ago, good family friends of ours had the nightmare that no parent wants to realize take place in their family when they gathered in the afternoon, gathering all the kids together, been playing outside, and recognized that one of their children was not there and nobody knew where she was. The family then began searching. They live on an extensive piece of property. Some others joined in with them. They looked all through the afternoon, all through the evening, all through the night, got up early the next morning after a a little bit of sleep, began looking again. That search went on for a couple of days, trying to find this little girl. After a couple of days of endless searching, praise the Lord, she was located. Still on the family property, not more than a mile from her house, but she had wandered through some, some woods Gotten turned around, lost her sense of direction, didn't know where she was, and just sort of in a, in a panic, she froze. But then she made a decision that the best way for somebody to find her was for her to stay right where she was, not even to try to, to wander, not even try to go any further, I'm just gonna stay right where I am. And here's what she said, because I knew somebody would be looking for me. I knew somebody would be looking for me and I knew if they kept looking, I knew they would find me if I just stayed. Right where I was. There was comfort for her, even though she was lost, and knowing that somebody is looking for her. But how many of our friends and our family members and our coworkers and our classmates and our teammates have great spiritual need? They are wandering, they are helpless, they are being ripped apart by the world. They are being ripped apart by their sin and brokenness, but they don't know if anybody cares. They don't know if anybody's actually looking. Would anybody listen? Can anybody help me? Because the only thing worse than being lost is being lost and knowing that nobody is looking for you. So we, may we, may we as the people of God, may we as South Carolina Baptists, may this faith family as, as members, as brothers and sisters in the Faith family known as Taylor's First Baptist, may we be a people who are always looking. Every day when we go on our walk, may we be a people who are always looking. Every day when we go to the gym, may we be a people who are always looking. Every day when we go to school, may we be a people who are always looking. When we go to our jobs, may we be a people who are always looking. When we go home and sit around our dinner table at night, may we be a people who are always looking. In this, then, we see the fourth picture out of this text that I want us to see this morning, and that is for us to see our calling. What is it that we are supposed to do about this great problem? What is the solution that Jesus is going to call us to? Matthew 9, verse 38 Jesus says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus says, pray earnestly. He's not saying to to pray quiet prayers. He is calling us to beg before our great God to lay down our lives before him to beg him to move in his grace and his power and his love and his mercy because he is Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. No matter how great the harvest might be, no matter how extensive the mission field might be, whether it's here in Greenville County or it's on the other side of the world, God is the Lord of the harvest and he is the one who can reach down into that harvest and change the heart and life of anybody that's still in that harvest. There's not a single person living and breathing, walking on planet earth that is outside of the saving grace of our God. He is able and he is perfectly capable. And so those that God has burdened our hearts with and those that he's placed us in proximity to, what do we do? We beg the heart of God for that person. Part of our always looking is always praying and doing it earnestly, calling on the heart of God, calling on the grace of God, calling on the power of God to break through whatever barriers might exist in that person's heart, whatever walls they may have built up for the Holy Spirit of God to break through and speak to that wandering, harassed, and helpless person and point them to the life that's available to them in Christ. So we pray earnestly for salvation, but then Jesus said to pray for more workers. That is, we are praying and we are calling out, God, would you raise up an army of missionaries? God, would you raise up an army of people that'll take the Great Commission personally? God, would you raise up an army of people in our faith family? that would take the Great Commission so seriously and so personally that we will lock arms and we'll lock hearts and we'll join our lives together and we will live on mission for you in this community and we'll take it to the ends of the earth as you lead us. But Lord, don't just raise up an army of missionaries out of this faith family. Raise up an army of missionaries out of every faith family in Greenville County that loves you because, Jesus, this is not about our little C church and our name that's on the sign, but this is about your name, and it's about your big C church, and it's about your kingdom. And there's plenty of people to be reached. There's plenty of people to go around. If every person that doesn't know Jesus decided to come to church this Sunday, there's not enough room in this building to hold them. So we need every church that's committed to the gospel and committed to the mission of God. We need God to move in those faith families to raise up an army of missionaries that will live on mission in this place and then be willing to go as the Lord would call and lead to the ends of the earth, saying, Jesus, you are worthy of our lives, you're worthy of our worship, and you're worthy of their worship. So we pray. Save, Lord, send. But I love this. Jesus didn't stop with praying. Praying is very important. Don't get me wrong, but Jesus didn't stop with praying. We get a chapter and verse break there because we go to Matthew chapter 10, but it's it's not a change of scenery and it's not a change of thought because in chapter 10 verse 1, it says that Jesus then right after he says pray, then he calls to him the 12 disciples. He gives them his power, his authority, and then it says in verse 5 what? These 12 he sent out. So he said, boys, I want you to pray, pray for these sheep without a shepherd that are all around us. And I want you to pray, pray for more workers, pray for more people to take this great commission personally. And then he says, I'm going to send you out as the very answer to the prayer. I just asked you to pray. And that word sent out, it's not a gentle little nudge that Jesus gives them. The the word in the original language is the word for thrust or to throw, or or even some have said to drop kick. Like Jesus took the 12 disciples and he just threw them right out, drop kicked them right out into the middle of the harvest. And what we learn here is that the call of God on our lives is not just to pray, but it's to pray and go. And it's not just to go, but it's to pray. Because... We cannot pray without going. But we can't go without praying. We can't pray, Lord, work in the heart and life of somebody that's close to me but far from you without going and saying, And Lord, use me in their lives. We can't pray, Lord, make the gospel known in some place where the gospel's not known without being willing to put our yes on the table and trust God with the consequences of our obedience and go ourselves. We can't pray without going, but then we sure can't go in our own power and in our own strength, right? That'll last about 30 seconds and we'll all be tapping out because it's hard, right? And it's inconvenient. The mission of God is never easy and it's never convenient. We'll tap out in a hurry if it's up to us. So we go and we pray. Lord, be our strength when our strength runs out. Lord, be our courage when our courage runs out. Lord, help us to live for something that's bigger than ourselves. Can't pray without going. We can't go without praying. So our calling is to pray and go. In 1857, there was a clothing wholesaler by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere. He was radically saved, transformed. God got a hold of his heart. And out of his radical salvation, he began to just share the gospel with anybody and everybody that would listen. He's going door to door. He's going to businesses. He's going into the apartments there in Manhattan, New York, where he he lived and he worked. The Dutch Reformed Church in the area heard of his zeal and heard of his work, and so they offered him the opportunity to come on their staff, so to speak, and be their outreach director, be in charge of their outreach programs, their means of trying to, to tell people about Jesus and reach people there in, in Manhattan. And so Lanfear set up a visitation plan, and he starts going door to door, and he's trying to get other people from the church to go with him and having little to no response from the people wanting to go with him and little to no response from the people they were visiting. And the Lord burdened Lamphere's heart that what needs to happen is we need to pray. And so he scheduled a noonday prayer meeting, our noontime prayer meeting on Wednesday, September the 23rd, 1857. He printed up about 20,000 flyers to invite people to come to this prayer meeting that would take place at the church. And at, at the noon hour, at the noon hour on September 23rd, 1857, exactly nobody showed up except Lamphere himself. So he did what he called the meeting to do. He began to pray. And as he began to cry out for people that didn't know Jesus, and he cried out for the community, he cried out for more workers, the door began to open and people began to file in. And by the end of that hour, six people had joined him for that noontime prayer on September the 23rd. They continued on the next week on September the 30th, and about 20 people joined for the entire hour that day. The next week, October the 7th, the Bank of Philadelphia collapsed. When the the people gathered that day, about 40 people came to pray. The Bank of Philadelphia collapsing led to the full stock market crashing on October the 10th and people were sent into an absolute frenzy to the point that thousands began to come and they began to ask that this prayer meeting be moved from weekly to daily. Within six months, Well over 10,000 people per day were gathering in Manhattan, all over New York City, to pray and to cry out to God. Word of this movement began to spread to other cities, and so Philadelphia and Boston and St. Louis and Chicago and Cleveland began having similar gatherings, where every day tens of thousands of people were gathering to pray, to cry out to the Lord. And as they cried out to the Lord, they left with a zeal and a boldness where they lived the gospel and they shared the gospel to the point that within two years of that first prayer gathering on September 23rd, 1857, within two years, over one million people had been won to faith in Christ and our nation was ushered into the third great awakening. It started with a man who was radically transformed by the gospel and who was burdened for those that were close to him but far from God. He took seriously the call of God. He took personally the call of God to pray and to go. Here's the question. Who is the Jeremiah Lamphere of Greenville County? Who is the Jeremiah Lamphere? So burdened by those that are close to them but far from God, that you would be willing to pray and go. That's the heart of this who's your one emphasis. It's what we're coming together to focus our hearts and our lives on today. I'm going to pray for us. Pastor Jeremy's going to come and lead us into this time of response that is powerful. And as we move into that time, I want you to be thinking of who's that person that's close to you but far from God that God's calling you to pray for and God's calling you to go to. I want you to pray that God will raise up an army of missionaries out of this faith family that will make that same commitment. And perhaps maybe you recognize today you're one of those sheep without a shepherd that's wandering and harassed and helpless. And you need the hope of the gospel today. Pray that even in this response that you would take that step to respond as Pastor Jeremy gives us some instruction in just a moment. I'm going to pray, then we're going to respond together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the work that you have done in and through your son Jesus, to make it possible for wayward, rebellious sinners like us to be rescued, saved, and transformed. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your power that not only saves us but that calls us to join with you in your mission to make the gospel known and the name of Jesus known wherever it's not. I thank you for using broken, weak, frail people like us in your mission. God, we know you could do this all on your own. You don't need us, but you've chosen to use us. And so we're grateful. We're humbled and we want to be faithful. So Lord, I pray right now that you would lead us during this time. I pray that you would burden our hearts for that person that's close to us, but far from you. And I pray that we would hear clearly your call to pray and to go to that person. I pray for the person in this place that's wrestling right now with their own salvation, their own relationship with you. I pray that, God, you would draw the net and that you would draw them to yourself and give them the the boldness and the courage to respond to your grace today and find the life that's available to them in Christ. Father, would you raise up an army of missionaries out of this faith family that will take personally your great commission and that you will use to make the name of Jesus known throughout Greenville County, throughout our state, our nation, and to the ends of the earth, because Jesus, together we say that you are worthy. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of the worship of every man, woman, and child. And so today we commit to pray and go. Use us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.